Welcome to the Full Metal interview of Matt Orr from Wedding Games. Uh, a few notes. I This is the first time I tried to record an interview over Discord, so I may have screwed it up a little bit, if you can tell. I'm sorry. Uh, second, we're going to uh, give away one of Wedding uh, books on our Instagram. So go ahead and head over there and check it out. Uh, Please, please, please go uh, check out their uh, the Kickstarter that they're here to talk about, Tenebrae. Uh, it's a really cool Roman thing, and we'll talk all about it here in a minute. It's going to end on September 21st, 2019. Hello, I'm Richie Buzzkill, and I'm here with Matt Orr of Wet Ink Games. Uh, thank That's you right. for coming on Full Metal RPG. Hey, no problem. Uh, so... Matt is Kickstarter out there right now called for uh, Tenebris? Tenebria. Tenebria. Yeah, I knew that I was going to screw that up. So <laughs> so how did you get into RPGs? Like, what is the your journey so far kind of been? Uh, I have I've told this story uh, before, but I knew that role-playing was a thing. I don't even know how I knew because, but, but I knew that it, it was, and you needed those special dice. And so I went to a store and I bought my first set of polyhedrals and I, I didn't know anything about how you did it. So I got together with some friends and we just did it. I made everything up. Like it was, and I, uh, I cribbed from, uh, some JRPG stuff that I was playing on the Super Nintendo and, you know, I knew you needed a map and I knew you needed to fight enemies and I knew you need to roll dice. And so I just like, oh, here, roll this one now. And people would roll it. And um, it 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 really, it, like I said, I don't know where it came from. I don't know who I saw doing it first, but I was very, this was in middle school. I was like, I got to try it. And we made some fun stories in a couple different worlds there. And that was, then I, then I met some people who actually had books. And then, <laughs> then it was like, Oh, okay. You make a character, and you have a campaign, and I see. I see. I, I was. I wasn't doing it wrong, but it was definitely better once we. Once you know, there was somebody who knew what they were doing. Uh, so that's really where it begins. Um, I played a lot of D and D three in college. I played a lot of Rifts and Palladium, other Palladium games like Splicers. Uh, in you know going back, my game group currently that I play with weekly is about ten years old. So we started with Splicers, um, and we played that, and then we've played all kinds of stuff. Um, we played, we tried Savage Worlds, we tried the Iron Kingdoms RPG, we've played Werewolf, we've played everything, and and out of that weekly experience of playing with you know. Uh, my writing partner now, my now writing partner Brandon, like we play in games at his house every week. It's just like, oh, well, what games can we do? What what do we want to do? What what do we want to add to this little hobby that we have? So we started making our own. Took that leap into game design, right? Which is, yeah. I think, I feel like all game masters have this leap built into them at some point. You're like, I'm gonna hack this system up. And uh, why would why would you do anything else other than just like not run it by the book? Which sounds like you started without like that's it's really interesting that no one you were like uh, first infection vector for all your friends like <laughs> yeah I, like I said I think it was I don't know if it was like the 
because this would have been, you know, the mid nineties. I don't know if it was like leftover satanic panic kind of stuff where it was like, Ooh, Dungeons and Dragons isn't something you should do. And I'm like, Oh, well, uh, let's find out what that is anyway. Uh, or what I, like I said, I, I don't remember the, the, like you say that vector, I don't remember where I got it from, but once I, once I had it, I, I, I went for it. And, the uh, as far as like being a GM or a player and then, going on to game design i don't know it's kind of been you know there's stories about like mechanically inclined kids or whatever that they take apart the telephone or whatever and that's how they discover that they want to be an engineer or whatever it's kind of the same way with me i'm like if for me to feel like i really understand a system i want to create something in that system so i've made homebrew dnd not dnd but uh you know homebrew um like monsters for Palladium, they've got Palladium has the racial character classes. I've done a few of those, you know, and you look at the skill list and you think about it and you're like, what skills would this class have? And you kind of put it together and then that, that kind of teaches you the system to do that. And then once you've kind of learned, once you've done that, then yeah, designing your own stuff is sort of the next level. Well, I guess I guess the intermediate step after that is you actually, especially with Palladium, you just write some stuff and send it to them and if they like it, they'll put it in the Rifter. You know, they've got a quarterly magazine or quarterly supplement that is fan submitted stuff. So that's actually where my first credit in the industry comes from is from Rifter 50, I think, um, which I wrote with Brandon. We did some Splicer stuff that we'd been talking about doing in our own game. And then we wrote it, then it got accepted, and it's in there. Well, that's really cool. I mean, like, it's great that uh, Palladium has a, uh, you know, a fanzine, right? Like that's kind of <laughs> growing up around the OSR a little bit too. Uh, they probably came from Palladium doing this, but 50, 50 quarters of a fanzine is pretty crazy. I'm sure they're probably at like a hundred by now, but I think they're in the eighties now, I believe. That's um, still insane. So you you went on and you did some more Palladium work, right? So you you wrote wrote a supplement for them. Yeah, I, Brandon and I co-wrote an article that was in Rifter Fifty that was a Splicer supplement. We added some more um, classes, some OCCs, occupational character classes. There, some some more rules for playing with uh, Splicers is sort of a um, if you don't know what it is, it's a it's biotechnology, so everything you do is like all your armor and your guns and your your they're all alive. They're they're living technology. So we draw a lot of inspiration from nature. Uh well here's a crazy, you know, like the pistol shrimp or whatever. It's like, well, that's a crazy thing that exists. So like let's give it stats. If it was uh, three hundred times bigger, like how many robots would it destroy if you had a you know, if you if you turned a pistol shrimp into a bazooka what would that look like in this crazy biotech world, you know? Um, and not that we did that exact one, but that's the kind of stuff that that Splicers let you do. So we did that uh, in Rifter 50, and he and I worked on um, the Sovietsky source book, which became a world book for Palladium, which was the, in there, in Rifts, the Russia has a remnant of the USSR, uh, but then, you know, how does that make sense in the rest of the world? And how do they think of the demon armies that are ravaging Russia and stuff like that? So we, we spent some time sort of writing the history and, um, Brandon has some uh, heritage in that part of the world. So he's connected to that material in a way. And, um, you know, so we wanted to bring in the, a human element to that as well. It wasn't just a caricature, you know, um, some of the Sovietsky stuff that had appeared before was sort of like, Oh, they're crazy communists over in Russia. Of course they are. 
you know, which, you know, is fine. But then we were like, no, but they're, they're real people with real motivations and they have, they may have politics, but what else do they have going on? You know, what are the, what are the factions within that organization stuff like that after that one? That's really cool. And it seems like you kind of continued that once you started wedding games, you were, you were kind of doing alternate history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With the fantastic. Exactly. We did our first game, uh, after that we wrote as did it and wedding games brandon and i did it together it took about two years of actual writing of the book but it is a 1930s uh diesel punk setting and it is uh uh europe in the 1930s and and world war one has lasted until everybody quit rather than there being any definitive peace and so there's a bunch of political turmoil and a lot of ex-soldiers and who've all become mercenaries in sort of this like mercenary economy of the, of the twenties and thirties um, where, you know, you've got, uh, you know, big, big business is big enough to hire mercenaries to protect them. So then like raiders have to be well-armed and you've got sky pirates and stuff like that. And the element that we added to that is that everyone is also an animal. So you've got, there are, there've never been humans. It's not like a mutated world of hum of like, uh, you know, TMNT or something like that. It's, it's just, it's Fox people and cat ladies. And, um, you know, if you want to be a, your chef is a turtle and you're, uh, you're, you stuff an elephant in the ball turret of your ship, you know, like that's, there's a, there's a comedy element to all that stuff that we really wanted to add to it. But yeah, it's, it's, you could, you could leave out the animals and just play a 1930s diesel punk game if you really wanted to. Right. And that's really interesting. So you took World War One, which is basically the apocalypse, and you went post-apocalypse. It still kind of continued, but it was really like this post-decimation because it's yeah. Europe is just crazy decimated out of World War One, And then if it keeps going, oh. I don't know what the death tolls would have been, but it, it's more like it, it, the the continuing has sort of caused all the the political turmoil. So you know, in in the real world, Russia collapsed into a civil war during the war. Like 1917 is the revolution with the Bolsheviks and all that. That's before the end of World War One. So in our setting, it's like, well, if they continue to fight and maybe if they hadn't called it off in 1918 how many more revolutions would there have been? And so we said, well, let's let's have everybody have a revolution. So France had a civil war and England turned into like a sort of little bit big brother kind of state. And Germany never got rid of the Kaiser. They, they had like a, a short-lived republic and then the Kaiser came back. So like in our 1930s, you've got Kaiser Wilhelm II is sort of like an older, wiser guy that he's still in charge. And England has, is being run by big brother and, uh, or I'm sorry, big badger. And then you've got... Uh, France has split into North France and South France, and there, there's like there's a demilitarized zone through the middle of France, you know. So it's it's not necessarily that there was a horrendous much more death count, but it it redrew the political map, uh, so that it's 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 Europe, but it's not the Europe you know. So then you did never going home. Yeah. Right, which is the kind of going stepping back to World War One, and then adding Eldridge Horror. Right. Yeah. Uh, it is that we did we did that and and that inspiration really came from you know like i've mentioned with, with the sovietsky and then writing uh wild skies and then never going home like we're kind of operating in the same sort of area of time uh 
you know, once you do some research on a, to get your head around a certain time period, then it's sort of easier to do a different project that's not very far away. I think that's definitely uh, the case in, in for me. Uh, but yeah, the Never Going Home is actually, it was inspired by an art project by a, an artist that we knew. And he was drawing all these World War One soldiers and some of them had tentacles coming out of their mouth and some of them had you know, uh, runes slashed into their foreheads or their arms. And some of them had deer horns, deer antlers and, uh, and the trenches and the, you know, people laying in the, in the mud and stuff like that. And, and he, he, this Charles Ferguson Avery is his name. He's an artist that he's done a few stuff in role-playing games and he, he was drawing this art and we we're like, what is this art? And he said, Oh, it's just, I'm just drawing it. And he put together an art book of it, but we wanted to do more with that. So we talked to him and licensed the art and developed with him the setting. Um, and then we got a whole pile of other people involved to make the book into what it is. Um, we got the, the, the creative team for that book really consists of four or five people that are really responsible for um, for the Never Going Home package. Myself and Brandon as writers and designers of the game. We brought in his wife, who's also my sister, uh, and she knows a bunch about World War One because she's read, I don't know, a whole bookshelf full of books about World War One, And she's also a fiction writer. So we had her do fiction throughout the book. So you can kind of follow the story of this one particular soldier as he experiences the war and as things get worse and he starts to question his generals and what are the motivations and what has he got himself into and that kind of stuff. Um, and then Irvin Jackson and Taylor White are two other writers that we both have worked with, before, that Brandon and I have worked with before. We know them going back from Palladium, really, is where we know them from. But they both have that horror sensibility. Taylor in particular is, he's like, Taylor, we need you to do monsters. He's like, ooh, monsters, my favorite thing. And he uh, he did the monster. He did about half the monsters, or you know. And then Irvin did a bunch of the monsters. I did a couple, but uh, you know, being the those different people, getting the sort of casting the jobs of each of the different parts of the book, we've produced this whole that's uh, bigger than any of our previous projects. You know. Well, that's really cool. I mean, and I I thought that was your sister because I was like, those names all kind of <laughs> go in line there. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's really cool to get kind of a, it's just kind of a wellspring of creativity kind of coming up. Right. So you, you had artist that, uh, was just drawing it. That's, that's really interesting. He didn't have a story already kind of coming out or just kind of just. Well, he had like some ideas about like what was happening and everything that he was drawing with the. With this idea that the tearing between the worlds uh, or a connection point between the worlds and monsters were coming through and then the monsters were corrupting the humanity, that the humanity was at stake in the situation that was that came from him and his art. You know, that's why the soldiers were growing the horns or or turning into monsters is because they're losing their humanity there to these dark powers, the eldritch horrors or whatever. Uh, they're becoming horrors themselves as they lose their humanity. And uh, we really played with that with the with the game design elements and made the game kind of about that as well, is that you've got your humanity is, is what's threatened. Like, life is sort of cheapened. It's pretty easy to die. There's no 
resurrection. There's no death saving throws. Like your hit points go to zero. You're dead. That's it. Roll up a new character. Uh, but there's a lot of ways to kind of prevent that if you are using your cards. Your cards represent that humanity that you're hanging on to. So you can you have a hand of cards, regular playing cards that you you know you can discard them to heal. You can discard them to cast some of your magic. You can discard them to um, get bonuses on your rolls. But then if you're out of cards, you're out of options. You know, you've sold all your humanity and you've survived that long, but now what are you going to do? So it was fitting the mechanics to the ideas that were in the art um, that really, I think, makes Never Going Home pop. It sounds like an amazing thing. I've got the PDF. Uh, I backed the PDF, so I haven't got to... Oh, great. Thank you. But it's an amazing uh, package altogether. And there's somebody at our Friday Night Role playing all of this stuff. And he's, yeah. he's done a couple of sessions. I haven't been there, but it uh, sounds like they're having a really interesting time running. So it's That's awesome in the world. <laughs> yeah, I having mentioned it is it, and we're getting on our Kickstarter right now We're you know, we sent the packages out a couple weeks ago. So I think the newest one I saw was, yep, got mine here in Russia. So, you know, we've had reports from Hungary and Italy and UK and um, you know, people are receiving, and of course in America as well, but the, I think Russia is the farthest one away that I've seen report in to say, Hey, I got my stuff. So it's cool to know that the book, like you say, went out there to the world. So it'll be interesting to see how those people that have a, a I mean, Americans have a relationship with world war one, but not mm-hmm. like the relationship of the Europeans to world war. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see what the reaction kind of feedback comes out. So yeah, definitely. This is our, third never going home is our third kickstarter so we had sent some books to europe before but not as many as we've sent this time so i think it i think that what you just said the the people being more connected to the the source material has really really drew some people in from europe so you went from early 20th century to the fall of rome but kind of in a similar situation as maybe your first game or after the apocalypse kind of yeah it, it it does kind of work out that way um the the choice to do tenebria uh which we're calling which we've got the subtitle remnant of rome on it so you kind of get that you know what it's about just from the name the uh i mean it comes from one of our writers that we worked with i hadn't haven't mentioned them but our never going home was designed to bring in a lot of other writers from the role-playing game industry and they all did short adventures and they're scattered throughout all the never going home books one of the books that we have is called the uh it's called once more unto the breach and i believe it contains 20 or 21 i think 21 adventures just by itself and they're from you know one adventure from one every everybody so 21 different adventures by 21 different authors in that one book and our other books have other adventures as well so Stephen Wu is the name of the person who's written Tenebria and he wrote one of the adventures for uh wild or for um never going home and we're like this is great do you want to do any more work for us and he was like I got this idea about Romans versus barbarians so um he's a writer and an artist so all this whole book is him he's done the art he's done the the uh he's done the writing he's taken the rule set that we used for never going home and tweaked it just a little bit to make it fit what he's trying to do a little bit more but it's basically the same game at its base but then it's got a very different theme on top of it it's not eldritch horror it's not world war one it's 
Romans versus barbarians. You know, the empire has fallen. You're at the edge of Germania somewhere. You don't have any support coming from the center. Uh, you're all ill on your own. And how are you going to survive out here? Um, you know, what what kind of sacrifice is that going to take? What kind of effort is that going to take? And so it, it plays on some of the same sort of mechanics as far as like, you've got, you've got a hand of cards. What you, they're a finite resource. How are you going to spend them to get done what you need to get done? Uh, but it's taking it in this more, you know, I, w- I don't want to say exactly real world because we've definitely made it, you know, more hyper than you would, uh, th- than, you know, any Roman historian would probably point out things that weren't, aren't quite accurate. But, uh, you know, we it, it's a little bit more grounded in bows and sword play and, you know, logistics of getting warm clothes for winter than than some of the other you know there's no tentacle monsters for one survival is the horror (laughs) sure you could think of it that way and 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 the struggle is sort of more it's smaller right like in never going home there's this invader this this force coming into the earth from the outside that you are fighting against and in in Tenebria, there isn't that. There is a little bit of magic in the game, you know, some sort of hexes, some blessings. You've got a little act of religion about like whether you believe in the new gods of that are coming out of the east or whether you believe in the old gods that are here in the north, you know, and but there's not the same threat to humanity at all. Uh, humanity at, entirely. It's just a more personal threat to you. Like, are you going to survive the winter? Are you and your friends going to survive as opposed to you know, is humanity going to survive? I read the Kickstarter page and it seemed like there was maybe a couple different setups you could kind of do. Like one was like you were all soldiers, ex-soldiers, kind of like never going home. And there was kind of like uh, we're all a family, maybe. Was that was that was I reading that right? The the thing that unites all the PCs, all the player characters for Tenebria is your connection to Tenebria. For whatever reason, this town, this sort of um it's a former military campsite that has been sort of hastily turned into a permanent residence for the the groups that are there and the refugees from Rome, and as well as maybe some German Germanic people that are in the area that you know they'd rather move to this town and ply their trade there than continue to live with the the barbarians, you know, that their own people, right? There is sort of like everyone's connected to the town. Uh, so your that's your your points of connection. So you can be anything. Yeah, you could be Roman soldiers who are kind of like, oh well, the old ways are best, and we need to keep doing it this way. You could be sort of a nominal citizen of the Roman Empire who you know you've worked with the Romans before, and they didn't treat you too badly, so you're willing to work with them some more, even though the emperor is dead or exiled. Or you could be some of the Visigoths who are like, oh, well, you know, I could either stay here with these brigands and keep getting knocked in the head, or I could, you know, take my arrow-making skills over to this new town and see if they treat me any better. You know, like you can, wherever you're coming from, and you're, maybe you bring your family, or maybe you bring just your comrades or whatever, but you're, 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 the town is the best hope that you have for survival. So you're putting what you're bringing into the town and that is character creation whatever wherever you've come from whatever your story is you know you decide that and then that's what you bring to the town is that experience that 
knowledge, those resources already with you. Roman army camps were no joke. They were like instant fortresses, if I recall from some of the things I've read. And is there going to be like a, a map or very detailed, or is this going to be one of those games where the players are kind of going to build this together, this town? There's a sort of a map of the surrounding area that Stephen has worked up, but as far as the, like a map of the town itself, yeah, it'll be up to the kind of it'll be up to the players and the the narrator to kind of work out what exactly is going on. I mean, it is the idea is that it was a it was a camp, but it wasn't necessarily like you were talking about the fortified city on it able to march the way that like a you know during the height of the Roman Empire they were able to field very large armies that were able to do that. But by you know four twenty whenever four fifty six I. Th- 458. I can't remember exactly when the when the last um, imperator was kicked out of Rome and no new one was elected. Uh, it's sometime around in there, 450s sometime. By that time, the Roman legions were much reduced. You know, um, they were not able to field as those sort of mobile cities that they they had in the glory days. So the the idea is that Tenebria started as a relatively small camp that um, that you'll be improving over time you know as you gather in more people as you have more time to spend you might set up some farms you might set up some watchtowers you might organize a place to be a smithery you know like you're you're kind of building it through play and each of those things that i it will take resources to do you know mind resources uh body resources the physical labor of it or whatever and you know maybe you build your defenses first and then you build your uh, smithery, and then you build your farms last, or you might build your far- you might decide that no, we need to we need to have that food. We need to get those extra resources first, so we need to build the farm first, and then we'll defend it if it comes to that. You know, it is kind of starting from that nugget. It is sort of up to you to how you and your fellow survivors who you're portraying uh, will will organize the town of Tenebria. Is there like a system for that or is it kind of a... Yeah, I mentioned the card play before. Like the the basic dice rolling is the, the decision-making mechanic. You've got to get five and six on a D6 to have a success. And however many successes you roll on, however many dice you roll and stuff like that is dependent on your attributes. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that. But then the other thing, the other part of the game is the cards... So you get a certain number of cards when you create your character. That's the resources you have access to. In the in Never Going Home, those resources were um, like your memories, and they were sort of nebulous as to what each one was, but you just had a certain number of uh, things that you remembered about your past, um, and you could burn those for effects. In Tenebria, they represent actual... The, the, their resources in a more concrete way. Their, their mind... Uh, resources or body resources or spirit resources or actual physical materials which are wild essentially so you you know like the farm takes some physical labor and it takes some organization so it takes three body resources and one mind resource to set up a farm but if you take the time to do that as a group and you give up your um you give up your resources you can uh you can then you know, the, the benefit of the farm is that you get one free body resource at the start of every mission. So it, it is you having to give up those resources that you've collected, the cards you've collected through previous play in order to get the, have the resources to be able to put them down to build that improvement. But then once you build it, it'll benefit you 
every tour, every time you go on a mission. Well, that's really cool. I like the, the like give and take. There's 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 another game called Mutant Year Zero that kind of does something similar, but it's you know that modifious big giant grand scale kind of but this is feels much more personal where you're like taking pieces of yourself and building this and really trying to drive forward so that's really cool yeah and this is something i think that's a good way to say it It, it is sort of personal in that way like the you know the the missions are set up and there'll be several missions in the book that will kind of lay out a, an initial sort of like season of adventures where you know you're you're under threat by the by the local militia tribe or whatever and you've got to go investigate and they turn out you know to be sort of more organized than you expected so then you kind of have to retool what you're doing and you'll play those through those missions um, and you know if you succeed in those missions then you get resources then you can spend the resources if you fail at the mission then you don't get those resources and you've got to decide how you're going to make it where you're going to, how you're going to make it now because you didn't, you didn't gather all your gathering mission and now you don't have as much to play with on your defend mission, you know? Um, and you might, you might end up telling the story of how this Tenebria city didn't succeed. Uh, or you might tell the story of how it became, you know, a new power in the post Roman world. You know, it's kind of, that's sort of the promise of the game is that, you know, are we going to make it or not? Is it going to, you know, what is the remnant of Rome going to be? Well, that's really cool. There's, there's, you can spiral up or spiral down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the players really have some say, which is different from the lot of heroic style stuff that a lot of everybody else is, which is I really appreciate. Uh, I like that term, heroic. Yeah, there is sort of a more, um, like I was saying before about the real world sort of coming in to the the setting. Like this is sort of a yes, you're still going to be rolling dice. It's got an abstraction, like, you know, the armor belts aren't necessarily correct for the period, but it is more of a historical setting um, than it is a heroic setting. I mean, there's still heroism and there's still some magic and there's still some ability to to kind of make your own fate. Uh, but yeah, it is more, um, it is more uh, personal, smaller in that way. Um, is is there going to be like a family mechanic or a way to like drive the it's like generational or is this like this is the generation that will determine going forward? I, I think that I think the game is intended to be yeah this is the generation that will decide the fate of this city like whether or not this will be a place that people survive or not is is, is these characters you know um, but that certainly would be something that would be cool to explore if you wanted to do that like the narrator is you know you play through the initial missions maybe you add some more and then you say like okay so we're going to do the next generation now and um you know that would be kind of that would be really cool that you kind of reset the game in that way that you know what else what else would you build um with with this game i think it is real focused on that that moment of like is this this is the, the crisis is now and and will you survive now or not uh, so but that is a cool way to think of it uh this sounds fantastic like i have definitely uh, i already had you know, on my list i was just uh, i love hearing these little details that don't come quite out in the kickstarter we get sure this these intimate conversations so one one question this is my yeah. pet question and of course uh i 
am not a lover of kick, uh, drive-through RPG printing. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that a little bit and why. I mean, assuming it, it is a much easier for you, lower overhead, but I just kind of wanted to hear your perspective on this. So we did, um, we did offset printing for Never Going Home, and the uh, because we had it was successful enough that it really almost mandated that you we we print it at that level, um, you know, boxes and boxes of books. Um, we'd love, I'd love to be proven wrong in the last like five or six, uh, you know, I think it's uh, seven or eight more days of the campaign. I'd love for it to suddenly catch fire and uh, really turn into um, uh, a phenomenal success. And then we would have that kind of, uh, we'd be looking at that kind of option for this book too. But from starting out, we didn't expect it to be quite as popular as Never Going Home ended up being. So you kind of have to plan for, as a business, you kind of have to make that decision that like, okay, this is probably going to be a smaller product. We're probably not going to be able to justify the expense of printing thousands of copies. So we, it's really then it comes down to the more print-on-demand style. Um, we also have, we were talking about sending books to Europe, like that's been sort of a whole education for us as far as like what it actually costs to get books from here, printed in America, put them in boxes with dice, then mail them over to Europe. It, it's, it's again, a, it's a whole other level of expense that we haven't really dealt with before. But if we're working with DriveThruRPG and DriveThruRPG's partners, they can print those books in Europe and mail them to people um, and so there won't be that additional cost, um, which again, keeps the product a little slimmer, uh, as far as production side. Yeah. It's, um, and I will say for the printing companies that they work with, they've gotten better. There are some unhappy books on the shelf from years ago that were printed through drive through RPG that don't look great and they, they do a better job than they used to. So, um, I think it'll be. You know, it's it's business. You've got to decide how much, That's how much. Yeah, I mean, we'd love to print everything. We'd love to get to the point as a company where, because not so much me. You're talking about having the PDF. I'm a big PDF fan because um, I don't have a ton of bookshelf. I don't I don't allocate enough <laughs> enough. Right. I have I have a couple of feet of bookshelf space dedicated to my role playing games. And if I want more space, then something's got to come off the shelf. It's just, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to fill my house with bookshelves. Um, and, but PDFs don't take up any space on the shelf, so I can have as many of those as I want. Um, so I'm, but then my Brandon, my business partner here, uh, he is much more a fan of having a physical copy. Like he almost doesn't read books that he doesn't have in physical copy. And so he's, he really pushes for that. Like he knows what that is. He's a fan of the product that you hold in your hand. And that you flip through, and and so he—that's an experience that, as a company, we want other people to have. You know, we we are aware that we're sacrificing something in in print quality to be able to deliver the product for a price that is more reasonable and to a wider audience. Like we we know that, and we've made that decision for this particular game. And uh, you know, that we we'd love to have a huge enough fan base that we would know every single time we could offset print. Right. Um, and and you'll get there. I I feel like your your quality was never go home and and Timberea, uh They seem like the quality is there. I I was seeing 
at least you were upfront about it. I just ran across somebody that was just like, oh yeah, we're, we're, your, your certificate's going to go out today. I'm like, wait, I paid $40 for a kicks for a softback that is going to be drive-through printed. Mm. So anyway, uh, but at least you're telling people up front and I really appreciate that. So I just like to talk about it because I want people to be aware of what's going on and why things are the way are. Sure. And you know, they, I mean, it certainly comes into play. Like if you've got the PDF, you see that of, of never going home. Like we, we did the, the layout knowing that we would be doing full color printing. Uh, so the layout is it, the, the pages look weathered, the, the journal entries look like they're torn pages from a journal. A lot of the art looks like it's been drawn else on a different piece of paper and pasted in. Like we knew that it was going to be that it has those, those, it's very similitude, right? It's not really an old book. Well, we did layout to make sure that it looked that way. And we'll be doing the same kind of layout with Tenebria to give it sort of that, because we're going to print it in full color. We're going to have, we'll be able to give it some of that textured feel, but uh, you know, it, we want to print it. At, we, we want it to look good enough, you know? Right. And I'm kicking myself for not getting the physical version and never going home. So I'm hoping that I can find that somewhere. Uh, well, I, I don't have a, I can't tell you that it's out there yet, but we, we definitely will be getting that into distribution. We've had with, um, you know, Gen Con at the beginning of August, uh, it's sort of been a whirlwind since then, uh, looking at our future projects and getting this one tenebria rolling uh but you know conversations have been had and we will be putting never going home into distribution so you should be able to get it at local stores you know eventually i I can't give you a date but hopefully by the end of the year you'll be able to get never going home in it through through a friendly local game store well i'll definitely put a bug in their ear to add it to their order list so sure thanks you know, I I am a fan of the idea, and I've been uh, I listened to all the uh, hardcore histories on World War One, and I was like, holy crap, we're living in a post-apocalyptic world, and then you add the Eldritch horror, and bam, you've got some really interesting stuff, and then you've got Timbrea with uh, you know this post previous apocalypse, the end of a golden age into the dark ages. So uh, you're right there in my head. So I please get out. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking for the door, which where's the door? I'll leave as soon as you show me had to leave. Okay, Well, let let me uh, show you out here. So thank you for being on Full Metal RPG. Yeah, Uh, no problem. I appreciate you coming on and I, I look forward to seeing a successful Tenebrea. And Thank you. Uh, we'll we'll uh, see you around. I'm I'm highly interested to all the next project. So appreciate the support and uh, thanks for having me on to talk about it. 